Season 2, Episode 4. I'm James. And I'm Pad. And this is UX Podcast, advancing business, technology, people and society since May 2011. And with listeners new and old all over the world, from Thailand to Curaçao. And wow, do we have an interview for you today. It's been a long time coming, but we did it and it was by chance. <laughs> we are talking to Nathan Shedroff and Chris Nossel. And we haven't done that in 11 years. The pair of them. Well, with the pair of them together, yeah. we haven't um, we haven't done. Um, we um, we first talked to them in episode twenty five, which is eleven years ago, as you said, um, on the back of their book that was released at the time called "Make It So," about science fiction interfaces. And both Chris and Nathan have written uh, well numerous books um, over the years. Um, which actually, to be honest, I think there's too many to list. There's too many to list, and we will obviously link to their respective online profiles uh, in the show notes. And today's interview was recorded at UXLX, which is a conference that is held every May in Lisbon, Portugal, and tickets usually go on sale each October and sell out every edition. Our conversation with them um, at the conference, we we wanted to reflect back on um, the interview 11 years ago and the book from 11 years ago and, and you know, project that into, um, into now and see what we can pick up and what's changed. I think so, yeah. But uh, Chris and Nathan being who they are, I mean, we were all over the place, but in a very, very interesting place. So in my, in my preparation for this um, gathering, um, <laughs> reunion, we could call it. Um, I look back at the transcript from our, our chat in um, 2012, um, some 11 years ago now. And um, it's, it's quite a, a typical uh, dialogue, I think, at least between, well, probably all four of us. Um, Nathan, you made a small technical error um, when talking <laughs> um, to a date. And Chris couldn't resist correcting the technical error and making sure we had the factually correct number <laughs> for, for this. Um, we're talking that about years. unlike either of us. No. <laughs> and, and then Per makes a, um, oh, a comforting comment, trying to kind of say, yeah. it's okay, I do this too. <laughs> and then, of course, I dive in with the jokey comments and the jokey mm. response and make comments about our ages and time flies by in decades and so on and, and go on to say, we'll book an interview with you again in 10 years um, so we can have the, re- you know, the new meetup and talk about this again. So and we'll actually have to play that clip. And in fact, I, you know, I came up with the title of the book back then too, but never did anything on it until about 96, I believe, when I started talking to Chris about it. And he said, yeah, right on. This sounds like fun. And even back then, we knew – we had a, a feeling that there'd be something interesting in that kind of investigation. But we had no idea exactly what would you know, come out of it or that we would find so much material. Hmm. Uh, quick, quick data, not 96, 2006, right? Right? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. 2006. <laughs> yeah. I tend to make the same mistake. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. You know, decades fly by now. Yeah. It's, a, it's a sign of our ages, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was just going to say, like, it's one, one kind of nerd thing to have been doing the six years. We'll book the interview with you in 10 years' time yeah. so we can have the, um, <laughs> okay, good. the re-meet-up and talk about it. So, um, Nathan got his decades mixed up. He said 96 instead of 2006. Ah, uh, dig it, dig it. Okay. Yeah, and you... So petty of me, I'm what, sorry. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you were actually going back to the, the origins of Make It So. And, and the, the very first um, kind of, um, research you did into the, the, the topic... Um, how uh, long you'd actually been working on the yeah, book. Yeah, and then prior how you moved on to the next yeah. stage, and then when you actually started working on the book... Um, 
Uh, no, in 2006, that landed. Uh, 1886, on being, around there. Around 1886. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, like yeah. I, I think I came up with the idea for it on the train, on Caltrain. That would have been 89. You did mention the 80s, okay. and then we moved on. That's what I think you went oh, into the okay, 90s, okay. but Chris then said, well, actually, that bit it's, was too... It's all a blur yeah, now. it's all a blur. <laughs> it's so long ago. <laughs> yeah. um, What's the is. saying about the 60s? If you grew up, in, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so if you remember our first chat in 2012, you weren't there. Yeah. Um, but uh, going on from... Because you know, I kept on looking a bit at the, at the transcripts of the episode, and... Um, in the time and space we are in now, um, AIs um, and oh, I'll say AI without getting into a more detailed definition of that, even though someone's looking at me across the table and probably would like to. Um, we don't mention AIs in that original conversation about sci-fi interfaces. And I tried, I thought, okay, maybe just the letters A and I we don't use. Maybe there's some variants. I, I tried to look for um, agents or agentive or... Um, artificial. I couldn't find any mention of these things, which um, kind of surprised me. But at the same time, it maybe maybe reflect more about the time we are in now. Because back then, it was really about interfaces. Like, yes, yeah, that was the thing. Well, we definitely mm. had agents <coughs> and uh, uh, mm. anthropomorphized interfaces and mm. conversational interfaces. In the book, maybe it didn't come up in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was not criticism of the yeah. fact we should have mentioned it. It's more a reflection on, yeah, you, that was a what thing. Else we had that was a category about. that was there. But, um, you know, we didn't have that burning need to talk about AIs. So if we did that conversation now, that chapter would have got a, oh, those, those films would have got a much, much, much bigger slot in the interview. Right. Yeah, Which is essentially the talk you just did. Yeah, yeah. it's true. Um, I, I have a question for you, Chris, and that is um, maybe because it, there's not a Hollywood film that necessarily... Well, so when I have my talk about the history of conversational interfaces, it starts at the burning bush which I get isn't necessarily an AI, but the next one is, no, it's a good one. The, next one is the golem. Yep. And okay. so do you, would you consider the golem uh, AI, and it, would it, pre, I mean, it obviously predates Metropolis, but would it fit in that uh, investigation not being a movie, or would it, would it have to permute to, like, Frankenstein? I the, the processing and obviously I'm very slow after the conference is over um, I try and really put hard boundaries around the survey um, so I think in, in the book I wrote in 2017 I referenced the golem as an example of an agentive interface which would lead me to say oh yes but in the context of science fiction it's arguable Yeah, it's arguable but it's a great, it's a great um, citation in the history of conversational interfaces, especially because the on and off switch is linguistic. I don't know if you guys know that. Okay. No. no. Explain a little bit. I don't read Hebrew, so do you want to... Are you, um, I'm not familiar... Well, I, I mean, it's... I don't know if, it, I don't know if there is an off switch, but the uh, birth, birth moment is when you inscribe... The uh, and I don't know. I think it's probably a specific word in Hebrew. I think it's but you ins- it's the Aleph, isn't it? But is it just the Aleph, or is there? See, now I'm getting confused with one of Ted Chang's short stories, which is just brilliant. Have you have you read this? No. You know Ted no. Chang, who who uh, he wrote the short story that became Arrival. Okay. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. Most amazing writer oh, in wow. the 20th century, as far as I'm concerned, because every single short story is a completely unique, different world that you've never thought of before. But one of his stories is... Um, I don't know how to characterize it other than to say it's like Hebrew punk. It's, it's sort of um, steampunk with golems. So, and the golems, so the most important people in manufacturing are, are Hebrew mystic writers who have to write out the instructions for the golem 
on a sheet of paper in Hebrew, so you're writing right to left, um, and I think there's a, a specific amount of characters that you have to use, so it becomes a limiting factor in your coding, mm. and then you wrap it up and you put it in the back of the neck of the clay golem, and it comes to life and does that function. And so now I'm getting confused of, oh. does the classic golem, the original golem, have one letter or a couple letters? I'm going to sound more knowledgeable than I am. I'm looking at Wikipedia at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the golem uh, originally had the aleph, um, and to, to turn the golem on, and then you would, no, I'm sorry, you would remove the aleph from the word emet, Am I saying it right? Hmm. Which means truth. Um, oh. And when you remove the aleph, it becomes death, and that turns the golem off. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, which I found just a, it's a wonderful linguistic pun in the middle of that wonderful myth. Truth to death. Wow. And then we got confirmed there was an off switch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so my question to your question was going to be, what's the topic that we should be mentioning today that we will end up be talking about in 10 years oh that's a fascinating one for us to maybe yeah. come back to as a ending <laughs> oh, question yeah. <laughs> um we can think about during this little journey of ours um, okay because yeah then we can come back in another 10 years but I, I feel like, like there's an ai in the room isn't there because everybody's talking about ai these days but at the same time as you were alluding to nobody is actually talking about something that they can define which is a bit of a struggle for us because everybody keeps bringing it up how do you guys feel about the, this word just being thrown around and, and meaning absolutely anything, it seems. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, so I did a workshop yesterday um, where I was teaching sort of fundamentals of design for AI, and I was touching on the, the three core components for me are fancy algorithms that interact with models based on vast data. I think that covers the majority of what has been called AI, and as far as I can prognosticate, what may be AI in the future. Mm. So for my money, those are the constituent parts, mm. if you want to work with that. But you're right. Like in the, uh, from the 1970s, uh, we considered um, spell check would have been a really powerful AI, and mm. now it's just a function. Right. Um, it changes over time. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Because I was just going to say, do you think then we're, we're stuck with the definition of AI now, and we're going to have to invent... Um, like super intelligence, um, I mean, do we have to have new phrases to move on to when we've kind of like you know, outworn, you know, so we've worn out these um, things that we have as AI? But what you're saying now is, no, maybe not. <laughs> well, Sadly, yes. I okay. Think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have words that change their meaning based on context. Pronouns, mm. the word horizon, those change. Your horizon is different than my horizon. Your listeners have a horizon all their own as they hear these words. Um, and that's kind of like a pronoun word. It depends on the context. Um, so I think that the social context, uh, and to some extent the technological context, will decide whether we keep that word or throw it away. Mm. There, we've already been through a couple of AI winters over the history of artificial intelligence. Um, and nobody would touch AI for a very long time. Um, even the term, even though like, that's why we invented machine learning. Because, ah, that's not AI. Um, that, won't, that won't cost me the funding that I need for my project. Um, but now it's back in vogue again, um, and we'll see how far it goes. Mm. But I was remembering. One of the things that we discovered when we were writing the original book um, is we went back to the very beginning of cinema as part of our survey um, that informed the book. And we rewatched La Voyage dans la Lune, and that's when you realize that there are zero interfaces in that film. Oh. Um, like when they want to open the door to the rocket, they just push it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Certainly, I mean, you could, you could sort of say that is a kind of interface, kind but of, what you're saying is, yeah, there's no sort of surface, yeah. Yeah, it's artificial yeah. intermediary. Yeah, exactly. That's kind Mediated of, interface. Assisted, yeah. There's no assistance. <clears throat> there. You're just pushing them from the out. Yeah, there was a, a fellow who use the term the Gutenberg parenthesis. I forget his name. Please forgive me. It's something I have to look up. Um, but it was his thesis uh, paper at the Royal College of Art. Um, when, when I ran across, oh, I think, no, I think the title of it was Into the Hot. 
it was a weird thesis. But to use the, the phrase, the Gutenberg parenthesis, really points out that um, what feels like something that is permanent as a part of the world has a beginning and it will probably have an end. Mm. Um, and I think Jeff Jarvis, that's not the one I'm remembering. So the guy I'm thinking of was referencing Jeff Jarvis. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> So it may be that there is an AI parenthesis, or there may even be an interface parenthesis. Yeah. And, and in fact, I kind of believe we're getting close to it. Lots of designers are asking the question, what does it mean to be an interface designer in a world where I can speak to a computer and have it do the thing? Mm. Yeah, so, I, I have to say that I'm very frustrated with the co-opting of the term AI, which now has just been you know, laid onto machine learning. Um, and now such that people who do, are doing real AI, like really looking at artificial intelligence, now have to modify the term and call it, you know, AGI or GAI or whatever. Um, it's, I mean, to, to play off what Chris is saying, I mean, that's sort of the natural language, the natural evolution of language, and mm -hmm. it's not like I'm going to hold that dike back, but I think it's problematic especially when you look at the media and you just an hour ago put this beautiful survey up and identified where the media's stories are that they shouldn't be and where they aren't that they should be writing stories about or reporting about. And to me, that's the difference between you know, reporters or, or filmmakers understanding that this AI isn't I, it's <laughs> ML. All right. But confusing that with stories about I, AI, right? And the difference there and the reason why, you know, if you read right now, this is, you know, almost June of 2023, if you read an article that references the Terminator or killer robots or anything like that, you automatically know that that reporter or writer has no idea what <laughs> AI is and has no idea what is important about what we call AI and what's mm. happening and has no way, like they don't know where the story is. Yeah. I think, uh, oh, can I share one quick yeah, anecdote? Please. Uh, I have a colleague that I work with who was at Google and moved to um, Meta. Uh, what was the opposite? No, yeah, he was at Google, now he's at Meta. I don't know if he still is because of all the recent layoffs. Anyway, uh, he and his friends like to joke about time to Terminator, uh, which is a metric uh -huh that they keep for conferences uh, and every speaker. Yeah. How quickly over the course, and I don't think it, I didn't hear it once here, but how quickly uh, will the speaker about AI mention Terminator? Uh, and I jokingly added it as literally the first word I made at a conference where I knew he would be. <laughs> well, you had a picture of Terminator, at least. Did I? In today's thing? I believe yeah, so. Yeah, there was one of your slides about films. Oh, all the, the all the ten, example. Yeah, yeah. I think the examples of Terminator. Okay. But no, um, thinking back, I think we talked about this in the previous, in the first chat from Make It So, or if not in the in the book as well. That um, that the, the sci-fi of now can only reflect society or the culture of now. So thinking about the terminology thing, are we going to see now a phase of sci-fi films which have to incorporate this this world where we have? used AI to mean all these machine learning things because basically now they've, passed, well, they've all passed the Turing test so you know, they seem it's kind of job done for AI now they are AIs and we have to use things like super, you know, super intelligence and so on to go beyond it just now because we're, we're, we're bridging different technologies so we need several times in parallel at the moment and that then presumably maybe feeds into Hollywood Yes. Uh, Hollywood always has to extend the current paradigm. And every time there is a great leap in literacy, A, it makes a lot of old titles look super stupid um, when they were just, you know, guessing or... What was the... What's the, the dreams one? 80s film, guy spills soda on his keyboard. Electric Dreams. Yeah. Electric Dreams. Um, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's Electric Dreams where a guy spills a soda on a keyboard and that wakes his computer up. Like, at the time, it might have been even, like, tongue-in-cheeky, but now it just looks so dumb. Anyway, yes. <laughs> like, um, like the teenagers ripping up magazine photos and inserting it to make... Oh, um, to a scanner <laughs> on Real Genius. Yeah. It's so dumb. Um, 
but like, but it because it, the, it worked, uh, right? Like it, you saw the evidence in the yeah, film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like why they buried that technology, I, I don't know. Conspiracy. Yeah, it's a vast conspiracy. Um, so yes, uh, and there's always a treadmill of increasing literacy um, and how Hollywood writers extend that. Um, and it's not ever going to end. Um, there was a intern at my job at IBM as part of the Design for AI Guild that I run who did a really interesting project about how we talk about AI and to be as specific as possible, balanced with being as, ac uh, as accessible as possible. That's not an easy rope to walk, um, and it is one that sci-fi runs and uh, abuses quite often. But as long as the movie sells, the studio is happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the, the difference I'm talking about is really whether it's characterized as sentient or not, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think as far back as sci-fi goes, we have writers and movies and actors and whatever portraying sentience, artificial sentience, um, and everything that is what we now call today AI, which is you know, incredibly impressive machine functioning was just never seen as sentience. It was just sort of technology, right? Mm -hmm. Like so in Eagle Eye, like, you know, or, or CSI, like enhance, 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 right? Like that's what we're, we're seeing every day now, apps that do these kinds of things to some extent. Um, but we don't think of that as sentience. And so I think that the conversation about AI that's out there in the world between, you know, Wired Magazine and, you know, some local paper versus, you know, an MSNBC or something is still centered on the sentience of technology. Is it happening? Is it not happening? Mm -hmm. What happens if they take over? Elon Musk says he's worried. You know, like, that's the weirdness of the conversation because there really isn't a lot of conversation outside of the tech design and a little bit of the sort of innovation investing world around like these capabilities of what we now call AI. It's funny because the, uh, the, the sentience question is always, it's very weird to me, partially because it's always a yes or no question and that's ridiculous. Um, I, I read and I talked about in the workshop yesterday a book um, that I read last year by Ed Yong called An Immense World. And in it, he goes through and talks about animal perception mm -hmm. and the resulting hints about animal consciousness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it really points out, uh, and, and uh, in the intro of the book, he talks about uh, or describes like uh, a gymnasium room with an elephant, a snake, a human, and a spider, and one other animal. And he says, to the human, they think that they're in, they can see it all, and so they can see that as the room. But each animal lives in a different world in that same space. Mm -hmm. And it, it really raises the question of the alienness of familiar sentiences. And the question for me personally about AI is not, is it sentient? Um, because we're plowing towards that as best as we can, um, for better or for worse. But what kind of sentience is it? Um, and I only see a very few films that are asking that key question. And one of the best ones, and I now cannot remember if this was out when we were writing the book, but Under the Skin, do you know this film? No. Okay. It's a oh, I just started singing Under the Sea. <laughs> 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 little mermaid. No, no, no. Oh, my word. So Under the Skin is this brilliant <laughs> film. It, it was filmed in Scotland, um, but um, Scarlett Johansson is the, the name actress in it. And uh, <laughs> I'm not going to give spoilers, but she goes, this happens in the very early part of the film, she goes around this city in Scotland luring men like with sexual come-ons and then they get back to this building and there these men get these sort of dopey expressions on their faces as they're following her and they don't acknowledge what we as the audience can see is this oil black seamless environment that they've entered into and as they're sort of following her like a, a fish siren. To, siren, yeah. or like a siren um like they slowly, like every, with every step, they get lower and lower in this black inky space until they fall into it. 
and then they are digested. Mm. And it's this beautiful depiction of an otherworldly sentience in a way that fits film really beautifully. Um, and An- so, Annihilation was one of those to me. Oh, yeah, weird core. Yeah. Yeah, like it's just going to be stranger than we can possibly think. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing more films, especially with the recent rise of chat GPT, um, begin, more writers begin to explore that space. What is the alienness of AI, and what does that mean if we are using it to access the world? But going back to what, I mean, you're essentially suggesting that sentience may very well be a, a continuum. Mm-hmm. Right spectrum, um, and and humans are maybe on one, maybe not at the pinnacle, but we're over on this end, and insects or whatever are over on this end, and we already know that you know AI technology, whatever, is capable of the level, you know, functioning at the level of intelligence of insects and even small animals, and I think when we were doing presentations about make it so, you know, I was telling people stop personifying your interfaces in your systems and your interactive televisions as people why don't you try pets because the level of intelligence quote unquote of a pet and where the technology could at least simulate sentience or intelligence was so much closer and why wouldn't you want you know your tv to be a pet than another person <laughs> it just well, seems like sex expectations much better well so. yeah right it, 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 the fail over to you know disappointment isn't as big <laughs> Um, the legal but, legal consequences possibly are a bit different. Well, but one of the, so one of the, considering uh, like yep, from yep. November on, now we're in different territory. Yeah. yeah. But what I'm hearing from what you're saying, Chris, is that I mean, we won't be able to define the type of sentience that perhaps is actually developing, yeah. because it's something that we don't we are not capable of understanding. I don't think uh, we're human. even. I don't think we're even yet agreement uh, in the animal world of where yeah. it begins. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so if yeah. we're not if we're not finished yeah. like you and your scale, yeah. there, Nathan. I mean, yeah. if we if if on the other insect scales or microorganisms and so yeah. on, if we don't really know where the grayness, you know, right, it's not well, all white right. at the end it, here. It's, it used it's, to be like, mm. oh, humans are tool users. That's what sets us apart. Yeah. And then we find out, oh no, like monkeys and dogs, and fish, and crows, and fish, and octopi. Okay, like okay, it's not about a tool. Maybe it's Opposable thumbs. So I go, oh, there's monkeys. And what, like, we keep moving the goalposts because we have to. To make yeah. ourselves yeah. special. And yeah. so <laughs> one thing I'm looking forward to is these technologies will really help us uh, question what that whole idea of sentience is, right? Like, we already had the Google engineer declare it's Blake alive, Lamar. right? And, and it's not, but yeah. it's, it's getting close enough that confusion is, gonna, is getting, you know, easier and easier to make. Yeah. Mm. Uh, this might be I don't know if this is political but maybe they, just thinking though then we're saying sentient but then also you've got life and we mm-hmm. have all the kind of you know, when does life begin yeah. when does sentience begin are, are they the same moment or does one come later can we end up with a situation where we have uh, machines who have maybe achieved one level that is higher than a, th- a living thing that eventually crosses that threshold. There's been a lot of talk about that recently, and we're going far afield of interface, and that's fine. I love it. Um, but um, uh, I have an outline for a book about designing for animals, like literally for them as users. Mm. Uh, and it's a long uh, history of that. Yeah. Mm. And um, part of that has been doing research into this question of sentience. And the thing that really struck with me that I learned last year is that the current thinking, and I will have to open up my iPad to look at sketch notes for the source, but the concept is that it was mobility that developed sentience. Because if an animal, uh, a stationary animal, develops a set of senses about what's coming towards me, and if it's a threat, avoid it. But the moment an animal becomes mobile, it has to subtract its own motion, or every time it moves, mm. it panics. <laughs> Crap, that wall is moving towards me. Oh, shit, that curtain uh, is attacking me, <laughs> right? Yeah. You have to subtract that, or the animal will freak out all the time. It is that subtraction that begins to outline a sense of self, and a sense of self is the core of the theory of mind. Mm. Yeah. Really fascinating. I know we've gone far, far. I, 
I have an interview somewhere in my archives that never got published for the Demystifying Multimedia book with a designer at Apple who was designing, he did interfaces for Coco, and he did interfaces. The, the gorilla? Yeah. Yeah. And for, he, he, the fascinating ones were dolphins. Yeah. Or dolphin. Um, where he said that the big difference, because you have to get into animal vision, right? Like if you're doing that kind of interface. The big difference with dolphin is that the interface constantly has to be moving or they can't see it. When um, uh, I taught for one year when Brenda Laurel was the head of the CCA program, and I taught both the undergraduates and the grads in interaction design, and one of my early uh, assignments was to design a banking interface for a shark. Nice. For the same reason. Like, they they have to have constant airflow or they drown. Hmm. Um, Oh, water flow because of the oxygen, or they drown. I mean, it poses this whole weird worldview of how on earth do you do that? Anyway, yeah, it's going to raise all sorts of questions. Okay, this is, uh, this is truly fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, the I places am, will go. Oh, yeah. I am going to bring it back to like I'm trying to think of. So, what's going through our listeners' minds right now? <laughs> <laughs> and this isn't well, about interfaces or sci-fi. We're developing a really good book list. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We need, that needs to be. Oh, that's going into the show notes. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay, Definitely. Okay. Uh, so how can I apply? But at the same time, some of these things they seem so complex and a lot of designers are getting their information from the media which we just criticized they were not aware of what's going on really and perhaps the reporting is under par uh, but what do what should i as a designer be expected to understand about all this what should i be doing to make myself not i'm perhaps not afraid of being replaced by an AI, but i want to use it because i'm interested and curious and perhaps i can make cooler things and better things performing things for my clients for my users where do I start? Where, 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 what, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Because everything is moving so fast. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm only going to start with a few anecdotes about how fast it's moving. Um, <laughs> like chat, like <laughs> massive industries, blue chip industries are retooling around chat GPT. And that was released in November. That's only what? Six months ago. Um, Auto GPT and Baby AGI was released like maybe two months ago. Um, Midjourney came to its own in fall of last year, and like uh, even in the workshop, I was like, I had two slides. Where I was like, and this came out Monday, but wait, this came out Tuesday, and I haven't had time to you know adequately process it. Um, and and even though my job at IBM is to stay on top of this, it is the most overwhelming part of my job. So a couple of anecdotes to say, we're all struggling. Don't worry. <laughs> it's very fast and very furious. Oh, that's a bad reference. <laughs> oh, my apologies. Well, you left well, the number off, because so the it's next a vague one, reference. The next one's going to be written by AI. <laughs> <laughs> number 11. Maybe. Based on all the others, right? Yeah. yeah based well, on all so the I would say that you know, you're absolutely right about how fast this is moving, and it's moving faster than anyone can keep up with, let alone sort of conceive of the boundaries. But the first answer I have to my designers is experiment, like use these things. The worst thing I think a designer can do is what a lot of designers did at the dawn of desktop publishing, which is, no, I will not, like, that's not typo. I can't control typography, I can't control color, that's not, I will stick with print. <laughs> and okay, there's still print around, right? But like, they missed an enablement of design that you know has been orders of magnitude. So mm-hmm. I think the worst thing a designer could do is say, it's more than I can deal with, I don't want to deal with, I want to keep to my process and tools. Um, so I just, I try to have my students just explore, play. Mm-hmm. I give them assignments so that they can see also like, where it's not really good. You know, I think uh, when, when, we, when I talk about AIs, you know, ML, AI, whatever. Um, I call them regurgitrons, right? Because they regurgitate, they beautifully, elegantly regurgitate what they've been given. And that's sort of all they can do, at least at the moment. They're not terrible. They're generative in this other weird way, but they're not original. And they have a built-in regression to the mean. So they're really good at mediocre. (laughs) If you're a sitcom or a rom-com writer it's over because it turns out most of that's mediocre anyway right like it's not gonna be 
if you're a really good one, you're going to rise above. So my students, you know, they can get 60 to 80 percent of the way there on their assignment. They still have to do the other 20 to 40. Mm. Not that they do, <laughs> but like you have to, you have to explore that. You have to play with that. The other piece of it is <clears throat> prompt design is a new design field. Like, how do you design a prompt to get the feedback that you want or the output out of a chat GTP or especially like a stable diffusion or mm-hmm. mid journey? That's a skill that they need to learn, which is an entirely new skill. And, and, I, and we, um, when we talked to you, Chris, um, about um, Agentive um, Technology, I remember us talking about just that skill of, as a designer, being able to say um, good option, bad option, judging what is produced by these generative systems. And, and that's an incredibly important skill. And one, at the moment, that can't be done by the systems themselves. Is that, cause, oh, yeah. Because it's a judgment. It's a subjective decision. I don't want to nerd out too hard. Oh. It can. <laughs> See, I shouldn't have said can't, yeah, shouldn't I? Right. I, I know, I sh- as soon as I said it, <laughs> I, could, I, I had the voice inside that said, James, you just said can't. Agree. Well, he's going to come with examples. The way that uh, adversarial networks work is actually with two AIs. Mm. One that spits out 10 options and the other one which says, which is closest to this prompt? Which of these images is closest to this prompt? So in fact, it is judging, but all it's doing is, is fit, yeah. um, not quality um not, not even novelty when i have been playing with chat gpt i always stump it by saying things like what's an atypical example of this object and like that implies a field awareness and the ability to recognize mm-hmm. within that what are the exceptions humans are still pretty good at that and i always like crash chat gpt when i ask it for those sorts of things um is that when it starts hallucinating best? No, so the new version of ChatGPT, and again, the speed of this thing, this was released <laughs> last week, I think. Um, but now it can, um, ChatGPT4, and this will seem ancient by the time somebody listens to this later, um, now can browse and plan. So, And it's, uh, there are also all sorts of other plugins. But you can do something like say, uh, hey, go to the UX uh, podcast website and find all the interviews with Nathan Cheddaroff and Chris Nossel and then summarize them in a timeline. Um, we tried it right before the most, the, the end of today's talks and it didn't work, but that's because we were only two steps into the prompt design. Um, I'm fairly sure we could get it to work eventually. We tried it for 10 seconds. So. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. Um, <laughs> and so to your point, it would be interesting. Like essentially I, I expect nothing to happen if you go to chat GPT mm. and say, what are the topics that Chris and, and Nathan should have been talking about <laughs> no, in their yeah. interviews, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't, think, uh, <laughs> I don't think it could handle the, the, the task that I set out for myself in the talk today, which is, what is Hollywood not telling us about AI? Those are hard questions to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think of one other thing, which would be a, an advice for listeners. Um, because AI is a technological thing that we are trying to adapt our work and our lives and our world to. Um, I believe one of the challenges for designers is to, and this is hard, but stay on top of the news and get good at separating the techno jargon um, from what matters to humans, right? Like, it might be of interest to know the difference between one-shot learning um, and uh, uh, the different types of neural networks there are. But as a designer, you don't really need to know. I'm saying that now. There, I, I can even hear my own caveat. But for the most part, right, reducing the AI and filtering all the stuff you're reading down to how will I use this? What does this mean for the things I need to equip our users to do um, is a great filter to develop because there's so much techno babble. I think I just brushed the mic. I'm going to say that again. There's so much techno babble um, that uh, you have to be the filter. I try and do my best. The, the poster that I referenced in the workshop yesterday was me literally doing that, looking at the algorithms, the three algorithms that underlie AI, and really saying, here's what matters. Here are the inputs. Here are the outputs. Here's what it does. Here are examples. And here are the interactions that are germane to that 
function. So I'm not the only one that's doing it, probably. So finding those people who can do that if you can't do it yourself is a good thing, but better is to develop that on your skill yourself. Mm. Well, and the title of your talk was, I mean, it doubles down on the sense of, you know, the point you're making is it's always about the people. Like if you're on the design side, the interface side, whatever, it's always about people and how is AI going to serve people. If you're on the engineering side, maybe there's a, you know, there's cases where you just care about the technology and the technology interface, interfacing with other technology. But, you know, we, in these discussions, often some people can get sidetracked and forget that, no, we're designing this for people. In the same sense that in my workshop, <coughs> in my workshop yesterday or two days ago, whatever, someone always invariably comes up to me afterwards and says, well, this all sounds really good for B2C, but I'm in a B2B you know, market and I'm enterprise and I don't understand how emotions and value and meaning fit because they only care about features and price. And my answer is you're not looking hard enough because as long as there's another person Mm. All this stuff still works, but business people for so long, especially in the tech industry, have been able to squish their brains in this weird way so that they can forget that there are people involved because <laughs> it's just numbers and the quantitative optimizers love that. But the message you're giving us about AI, Chris, is that, no, 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 people, like remember the mm. people, look mm. at the people, look at what they need, look at how it interfaces with, like in some senses, who cares how the, inter the, the, the technology side works? Yeah. Hmm. I think there's a, there's a second answer. The, the, that first answer is 100% true for us as designers. Yeah. We also have to acknowledge that AI stands to upend civilization um, and, and entire labor markets. Um, and so as citizens, we, should not, we don't need to pay attention deeply to the technology, but about the broad-scale consequences yeah. of the tech that technology but the things that we need to do there aren't like oh i'm going to go in and design something different i may have to go vote or convince other people mm. and educate them about well okay what does chat gpt mean for the labor market and then what do we do with the jobs that are about to be obviated yeah. and and sorry i misspoke with the people whose jobs are about to be obviated. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I to just yeah. talked myself right back around to what we were talking about, which is mm -hmm. it's still about the people. Well, except that's going to be a huge challenge on a philosophical and, and political and even religious level for a lot of people who are, especially in the United States, trying to uh, eke out. I mean, we have this form of, it's not even capitalism, it's corporatism, right? Like, eke out every last penny and out of the system it's so extractive that already we have job problems right and, and there's the moralization of well you, you know we won't give you food stamps unless you jump through these hoops okay. and prove that you're looking for work and you know there's all sorts of stuff that all so the research says u.s problem not a sweden problem doesn't work <laughs> right and and we're at this kind of detente in the united states between these philosophies, these approaches to solving problems, and here comes AI, and, and neither side is ready for that con the consequences of that, yeah. because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be impossible to hold to this idea that welfare is morally repugnant, and people are uh, gaming the system, and that that's not just, etc. Like, there will be so many people out of jobs, and white-collar jobs, not mm. blue-collar jobs, um, that there, it'll be impossible, I think, to hold fast to these traditional moral views of work and compensation. There's something really funny. So um, the, the, the pushback, the kickback against ChatGPT and MidJourney has been so loud, even from uh, close friends of mine on social media. But I got into a conversation fairly recently about where were you at the dawn of desktop publishing? My first job out of undergraduate was as a typesetter, a photo typesetter. And that job went away. Nobody was infuriated. Mm -hmm. um, but now, I, I think it's a bit of hubris on humans' part just to think, oh, art is special, writing is special. Turns out, not so much. Quality art, yeah. right? <laughs> quality art and quality writing and even novel writing and novel art is hard and difficult um, and maybe not still not the purview of AI and taste is not the purview of AI. Um, but 
we've hit a point where we're touching on deep emotional things um, mm -hmm. that, that we have to wrangle with um, because it's no different than the desktop revolution as far as my job, my old job was concerned, um, but it is different in the scale and the speed at which it's gonna happen. So you, there are gonna be, there'll be new jobs and you know, well, mm -hmm. lots of people lose their current jobs, like Chris's example there. But what, what I think is really interesting that you said, Chris, about you know, your job is to keep on top of the changes, what's going on in the AI world, and you can't keep up just now. Yeah. Right? So, so <laughs> I so, did say both things, didn't I? Yeah. So, so, they, <laughs> so, so we're in a, an inevitable period now where policy does not have a kind health chance. There is no way policy can keep up. If Chris can't keep up and people involved in this branch can't keep up, then policy definitely can't. It wasn't going to keep up anywhere. Now it really can't. So and policy is what we'd need to like... Um, revolutionize education because a part of the answer I guess to this thing of where you know where are all the jobs going to go you know all these people without their jobs no it's the generations coming up need to be trained so that the new jobs that are coming they can fit into them but it's so fast now we're not going to get the policy in place and we're not going to understand what that is in oh. except I think if you go back to people as your grounding um, philosophy maybe policy will never be able to keep up, but it, it could certainly keep up better than it is now, yeah. right? Our leaders. And we can Or look even at, enforcement of current policy. Right, right. Yeah. Or redefining, yeah. you know, we had the wrong sort of specifications, yeah. but our intent was this, and we can change the specifications. Um, you know, we know what skills humans need to be, you know, children need to be, or adults need to be retrained with. It's very clear, creative thinking, strategic thinking, systems thinking, um, design learning. thinking, communication, collaboration skills, and critical thinking. I think those are the ones I've, I've put together, right? ChatGTP, these technologies are not good at those. So yes, we need to say, we need to redesign education. Mm. And then we need to redesign the assessment of you know, education because you know, every, every college, every high school, every school, instructor right now is dealing with like what do you do when they write have chat gtp write their essay well maybe you know book report was never the assessment that someone learned something that we all assumed and pretended it was now it's clearly not so change your pedagogy like it's time mm. get off your ass sorry it you know you were you're still in the workforce when this happened but you got to change and i don't think a lot of people are ready to do that especially in academia yeah i also think um the modern luddite movement uh needs to be brought to the fore and people need to get on board um so uh luddism as it was as it was corporate washed was about an unreasonable fear of machinery and progress. Right. That's a very useful denouncement for a corporation to make. Um, but uh, I was recently uh, reading a book called Breaking Things at Work uh, by Gavin Mueller, and it was all about the sort of factual history of the Luddites. Um, and in fact, they were a labor movement who were concerned with losing power in negotiations with mill owners, which once you put a mechanized loom in a factory, suddenly the hand loom people no longer have mm -hmm. negotiations for their jobs. And they're like, and this is going to ruin our quality of life. We're not going to be, we're going to have to travel to a factory, your it, factory to do a job. It was all about fair wages. We're, we're going to be replaceable. It's about quality of life. Um, and so <laughs> that is now back in uh, relevance, mm -hmm. right? Like the, we can either structure um, industries and from a design perspective, individual relationships of users to AI as either a, oh, you are the babysitter of this thing and therefore you are much easier to replace um, or we can design them as augmentations. Um, and business, qua business, does not have the incentives to make that happen. It has to come from a pressure both from other systems such as government, but they're slow, or us, I'm mm -hmm. pointing to yep. everyone at this table and everyone listening, um, to put pressure and um, vote with your dollars, vote with your vote uh, in order to steer the powers that be away from creating uh, 
AI systems that just replace people or turn them into not managers. That, that implies things that I don't want to. Um, babysitters. Turn them into the babysitters of the AI. That's a terrible world, and I don't want to mm-hmm. live in it. Um, but while we're on this thread, I did want to add one other thing to our long and uh, listing book recommendations. I just started it on the plane, uh, but Matthew Wazinski's Design After Capitalism um, touches on a lot of these yeah. issues and even has a section on uh, Luddism that I'm eager to get to. Mm. Highly recommended already, and I'm only mm. on chapter three, mm. um, but it touches on a lot of these issues. Do you know what? I don't, we're not going to have time to go back to the, the question at the beginning about what kind of interfaces sci-fi interfaces we'll be talking about in 10 years because we, we just don't know so so it's fine we yeah. just book the interview in 10 years yeah. and get on with it. Yeah, there you go yeah. definitely it's a cliffhanger yeah that yeah. is a good cliffhanger <laughs> thank you a huge thank amount. you guys that that was was wonderful for this chat. Really, I, I feel like we just got started yeah it just got started recommended listening well I think um, a good choice this time of our out of our many interviews with Chris we've done over the years. Um, uh, it's go back to episode 121, uh, Agentive Technology. Uh, I mentioned it a little bit in the interview, um, but um, this is from seven years ago now. Well, 121, I was going to say. Yeah, that seven years ago. ago as well. Um, yeah. But yeah. Um, um, he, oh, it, we talk about digital assistants and agents and um, you know, using technology to do things for us. So it's, it's very much aligned with what we've been talking about and mm. um, rather, very relevant still. It's a fun one. I, you say agentive, I say agentive. I think it's one of those, you say potato, I, I think say we, potato. I think, <laughs> I think, both I think are correct. we do actually talk about that in the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and if you want me and Pear as part of your next conference, event, or in-house training, we are offering workshops, talks, and courses to inspire and help you grow as individuals, teams, and organizations. Um, to find out more, just get in touch by emailing hey at uxpodcast.com. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. What do you call a bee that can't make up its mind? I don't know, James. What do you call a bee that can't make up its mind? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs>